Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? If you have a Bible, open it to Malachi chapter 3. We've been working our way through this last book of the Old Testament. God's last words to his people before Christ comes 400 years later in the New Testament and the Gospels. And we find ourselves in verse 13 of of Malachi chapter 3. After today, there will just be one more message in Malachi, and then we'll move on to, to something else. But let me quote to you a famous statement in the past 100 years from a a well-known author and pastor, A.W. Tozer, who said that the most important thing about every person is what they think about when they think about God. Now think about that sentence. I think there's a lot of truth in it. I think if you think about it, it it is a helpful statement. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. In other words, whether or not you have a biblical picture, whether or not a person understands rightly who God is, really determines. It's the most important thing about them. This morning, I think the text is going to serve as an opportunity for us to consider an absolutely essential element of the Christian life, the fear of the Lord. What is it to fear the Lord? And we'll see in our text that whether or not we rightly fear or Lord, fear the Lord makes all the difference. In fact, the text says that it's the difference between the righteous and the wicked. So with that, let me read, starting in verse 13 of Malachi 3. Now, our main text is through the end of the chapter, verse 18, but I'm going to go ahead and read into chapter 4 in the first three verses because it all sort of ties together. And then we'll handle chapter 4 in, in the whole next Sunday. Let me start reading. If you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, I am sympathetic to the fact that we are in the middle or towards the end of an Old Testament prophet. And prophetic language in the Old Testament tends to be obscure at times and hard to understand. And so you may be thinking, oh, great. I'm going to have difficulty following. Well, I think that as we work through this text, and I hopefully, with God's help, I explain it to you, you will understand the, the context, you'll catch up quickly, and then after we work through this text, I want us to consider this truth, this idea, this concept of the fear of God and how that applies to our lives. So I, I think you'll, you'll be able to grab some handlebars um, as we work through this. Listen to the word of the Lord, Malachi 3, starting in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to test and they escape. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then once more shall you see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Chapter 4, for behold, the day is coming and burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand. 
Lord, we thank you for your word, your ancient word that you wrote to your people through your prophet Malachi thousands of years ago. And yet it is true and relevant, imminently relevant for us today. So help us understand this text, Lord. Sanctify us by your truth. Sanctify us by your word. Point our eyes to Christ. Let us see the glory of the gospel in this text. And Lord, awaken our, our, our sleepy hearts, our temporary earthly hearts, and, 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 and lift up our eyes so that we would see and fear and understand you rightly, and it would lead us to joy and worship. And for my friends in this room who don't yet know you, Lord, I pray by your sovereign grace that you would give them eyes to see and a heart to believe this glorious truth about what you have done to reconcile sinners to yourself. And I pray it all for your glory and for our good and for our joy and for the salvation of all those that you've called to yourself. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's going on in this text is, again, this final dispute. The book of Malachi, the, the words through the prophet Malachi, in these three, now four chapters that we've gone through, are, are arranged, sort of organized by these complaints or disputes between the people. The people will say something like, God, you don't really love us. And we've, we hear God responding in the beginning, no, I have loved you. I've loved you even before I created you. And, and then they'll complain about something else and God will answer them. And, and the whole message of Malachi is really arranged around a kind of argument between or dispute, almost kind of like a, a courtroom case where the people are bringing an accusation against God and he is responding to them in patience, but also in clarity and holiness. And here, in, in midway through chapter 3, we, we see a kind of repetition of what we read in chapter 2 where the people, at least some of the people, are, are, are tired of following God because they don't think that it's paying any dividends to them. And we need to understand why they think that and the context that Israel is in at this time. So Israel, of course, was, was instituted, was created by God through one man, through Abraham, all the way at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 11 and 12. God, he creates this, this nation, this family through Abraham that becomes a nation. And he says that he has plans and purposes for this people, Israel, that they would, he would bless them so that through them, they might bless all the peoples of the earth. So in a way, I think a very clear way, Israel as a nation and people in the Old Testament is a kind of shadow of what God will do through his people, his purpose in his people in the New Testament, the church, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles, all those that believe in Jesus. So God's dealings with Israel and his purposes for Israel in the Old Testament we see are realized and come to fruition in the New Testament and the people of God, that he would bless his people so that they would be a picture of his grace, so that the redemption that comes through Christ, the good news of the gospel, which is preached and proclaimed, the news of the gospel, what God has done to reconcile a people to himself through the life of his son, would have a kind of picture in the lives of his people, that we are to be a, a city on a hill, an example of what God has done to reconcile people to himself. That's the purpose of the church, and it's the purpose of Israel in the Old Testament. And so now what's happening is that God is holy. He's called these people to himself. He says, I have a plan and purpose for you, but they have rebelled against that purpose. They have not listened to God. And so Israel finds themselves in captivity. They were first in Babylonian captivity. And now the Persians came and conquered the Babylonians. And now Israel is in Persian captivity. And the Persians were a little bit more gracious to God's people than the Babylonians. And so at least the Persians allowed Israel, at least a portion of the people, to return to the Holy Land, which is Israel, and to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. And so Israel, the people of God, mostly are back in the promised land that God has given them and promised to them all the way at the beginning of the Old Testament with Abraham. But even though they are back in this place where they should be, they're still under Persian captivity and they're still not experiencing the blessing that they think that they should have from God. Part of this, in fact, 
the majority of their attitude is because they misunderstand the blessing of God. They wanted God to give them blessing, which was all merely earthly and temporal. And God's promise to them wasn't merely just land, the land that he promises them in the Old Testament. And the blessing that he promises them in the Old Testament is a kind of shadow that points to the heavenly reality of the true Canaan, which is the city of God, to be with him forever. And so when they find themselves in this place, but not experiencing the blessing that they thought they should have, still under the thumb of these foreign captors, the Persians, they're discontent, they're frustrated with God because they think all of his promises have not come true, come true with him. Let alone the fact that the reason they're even in that place is because of their disobedience, right? They're just frustrated with God that they aren't experiencing all that they should be experiencing, even though it's their fault. Does this sound familiar? The story of Israel is the story of the Christian life, isn't it? We're, we're like this. We're like this. And so, because of their current situation, which they're in because of their sin, and God is dealing with them with, 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 with a kind of strictness and punishment, which is for their good, God chastens those whom he loves, right? Hebrews 12. Even though they're in that situation, they don't have perspective, and they're complaining to God, and they're basically concluding here in verse 13, they're saying, verse 14, it's vain to serve God. This is useless. I mean, I'm, I'm doing what I think is right, even though we've read in the previous parts of Malachi that they re their hearts weren't really doing what is right. They were just going through sort of religious motions and they were expecting God to be kind of like a spiritual ATM. If I invest, if I put my card in, my sort of outward obedience and I give lip service to this thing, then something should come out of the God machine and I should be blessed. They were treating God like a kind of mutual fund that they expected earthly immediate dividends from and they're saying this is this is this is not even worth it and they say in verse 14 look at it again what's the profit of keeping his charge i mean following his law or walking as in mourning before the lord of hosts i mean what why should we why should we even act like any of this is important to us in fact you know it, it's we're not seeing any return on the investment of our exterior obedience and by the way also, they say in verse 15, and now the, the, the arrogant are blessed, the evildoers prosper, and God's not doing anything. In fact, we read about that in Malachi 2, too. They said, you know, the evil are prospering, so what does it matter? They even called God evil for allowing the evil to prosper. And this is the people's attitude towards God. This is the, the attitude of the wicked. But then look at verse 16. It says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. They evidently heard God's charge against them when he said in verse 13, your words have been hard against me. In other words, you're wrong. What are you talking about? And for at least a portion of the people, it, it produced in them some repentance, some circumspection, some introspection, some fear of the Lord. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord kind of huddled together. They spoke with one another. And apparently, it produced some repentance in them. And then, second part of verse 16, then the Lord paid attention and heard them. He responded to what was worked in their heart. And a book of remembrance was written before him. It's not like God needed to take down notes so that he wouldn't forget. But we see this theme of a book of remembrance all throughout the scripture that God is writing their name down. I think this is a kind of picture of the Lamb's book of life that we see at the end of the Bible. God is saving these people because of their contrition, because of their repentance. He's paying attention to these people that fear him. He's writing them down in his book of remembrance of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And he says of them, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And this day he's speaking of is the day that he will finally come and fully redeem Israel, which we realize in the New Testament isn't just ethnic Israel, but it's spiritual Israel. It's all those that trust in his son, whom the Old Testament is pointing to. So I think the end of Malachi 3 and the beginning of Malachi 4 is a 
a reference pointing to the second coming of Jesus when he will finally and fully vanquish all sin and gather his people to himself and make them his treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him, which I think is a clear reference to God will spare them from the judgment that is coming on the world because of God's holiness. Then once more, verse 18, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So, on that day, all the world will be divided into two people, two types of people, those who are righteous and those who are wicked. What's the difference between the righteous and the wicked? According to this text, text it's those who fear the Lord and those who don't fear the Lord. So what is the fear of the Lord? I want us to think about that. By the way, I worked through that text. We're done working through that. We're going to look back at it, but that was an explanation of the text. And I just want to note that for the past couple weeks, I've worked through the text actually really, really quickly. And so you're welcome. <laughs> Although I did that last week, and that did not result in a shorter sermon. So uh, here we go. <laughs> what is the fear of the Lord? Don't misunderstand the word fear. Don't think of it as cowering in the face of a tyrant who is there just to punish us. Fear of the Lord is a nuanced but beautiful biblical concept. It's the fear that a child would have for a father who has all authority, but yet who he is in relationship with. It's a kind of reverence that leads to relational joy and worship. It's not a dread of, 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 of some mean, tyrannical despot, but it's this relational joy. It's this, it's this esteem is the word that the prophet Malachi uses. It's the, the joy of being in right relationship with a holy God who is totally other than us, but has condescended to make himself known to us. It's to be in right relationship. It's to be oriented towards pleasing him in all of our ways. It's to see him as the potter and us as the clay. It's to have a right paradigm of the universe that everything centers around God and not, as, not around us. We are here for him. He's not here for us. The world and the universe is radically God-centered and a person who fears the Lord sees this and understands this and the fear, the right fear of the Lord is not against our joy, but it's the only true pathway to joy. That's the fear of the Lord. Some passages that, that point us in this direction. And then I want us to think about four aspects of the fear of the Lord. First, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 10. By the word, way, the word Deuteronomy just means the second giving of the law. It's Moses giving the law again to the people of Israel after wandering in the desert, after they've been rescued out of Egyptian captivity. He gives them the law at Mount Sinai right after their rescue from Egypt. They disobey the law. They wander in, as, in punishment in the desert for 40 years. And right at the end of Moses' life, before they pass over into uh, the Canaan land, under the leadership of Joshua, Moses gives the law to the people the second time. That's what Deuteronomy means. So Deuteronomy 10, verse, starting in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? And then listen to this description of the life that fears the Lord. To walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of, heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord has set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, 
For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heaven. So do you see what... This has a wonderful description of the Christian life that God has done this for you, so fear him. He saved you because he loved you because of his sovereign grace. Now fear him. And what should this fear produce in you? Worship, praise, and love for other people so that God might use your life to be a witness of his grace to the sojourner and the foreigner. Psalm 19, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Psalm 25, verses 11 through 15. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Verse 14 is so instructive to help us have an, a biblical understanding of the right fear of the Lord, that it doesn't, it doesn't cause us to cower and dread away from God, but the right fear of the Lord actually draws a person near to God. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And then Proverbs 1, verse 17 Proverbs is full. You would do well this week to just type into your Bible search engine just the fear of the Lord, and you'll, there are a bunch of verses from Proverbs will come up. Proverbs 1.17, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the difference between the righteous and the wicked, the difference between all people in the world, is those who fear the Lord and those who do not. So let's think about the fear of the Lord in conclusion. And let's apply this, this, this truth to our lives. Four thoughts about the fear of the Lord that we see divided Israel here in Malachi 3 and 4. One, the fear of the Lord is cultivated in community. It's cultivated in community. Look again at verse 16 of our text. So there's all these people complaining, talking about how useless it is to serve God saying that God is evil because he's allowing the wicked to prosper. But in verse 16, it says, And those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. There was, this, there was this horizontal encouragement. I mean, you know, they're listening to their friends. Is this right? No, that, that can't be right. They spoke to one another. They consulted, and their words encouraged them to fear the Lord. That, that's the life of community. Our life together as a local church, our life together with other Christians should cultivate the conversations that we have should cultivate more fear of the Lord in our lives. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. And I have read this verse a lot lately. And I've just been really fixated on the, the picture of the local church that 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14 gives. I think it's one of those foundational verses for the culture of a local church. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. There's this conversation, this, this, this God-centered conversation, encouraging, being gentle towards one another. This fear of the Lord causes us to care for one another, and it produces in us a kind of Godward orientation in our conversation that God uses to build reverence and holiness and godliness with one another. But the opposite can also be true. So you see these two groups of people in Malachi 3. There's those that are complaining, and there are those who are consulting with one another, and it's producing the fear of the Lord in them. So if our, our conversation can cultivate fear of the Lord, it can also cultivate the opposite. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 33 and 34. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 
You know, sometimes the Bible can be difficult to understand and apply. Verse 33 is pretty clear. Don't hang around with knuckleheads. Verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Of course we want to be involved with unbelievers in our life as a witness, but we don't want to take their counsel and let it affect our souls, right? That's what, that's what Paul is saying here, is here, and that's what we see in the text, that, that there should be this type of community, this type of speech, this type of ethos, this type of culture in the life of a church, where the way we speak to one another should cultivate the fear of the Lord. Just, just an application. Does your conversations with other believers in this church help to cultivate that in their life? I, I, I don't know that it's so much causing, you know, there's bad company that causes, you know, our morals to go into decline. Maybe that's happening. I, I trust the Holy Spirit if that's you and you're that person that convict you of that. But I just want to push on us a little bit and just call us for just more meaningful conversation. I want to in particular call on men to have more meaningful conversation with one another. There's something about the fall even though it's 100 degrees outside, and I know it doesn't feel like the fall. Well, I don't know what's going on. But eventually, maybe it'll come, and it'll dip below 90, and it'll feel like fall. There's something about the fall. There's something about football and hunting season that serves to distract men and make them very very surfacy with each other. Now, I think that's the way men generally by default are always with each other. But there's something about being able to gather on a Sunday and talk about what your team did on a Saturday or where you're going to, you know, hang out in a stand tomorrow morning at four o'clock in the morning that makes you feel like you're fellowshipping with other people. But it's, it's not, it's not Godward conversation. It's not, and I'm not against those things. I, 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 I like football. I owe much of my life to football. It, 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 God used it as a means to, to shape me. My dad was a football coach. I, I, I love it. I, lo- I love it. By the way, Army's really good this year. But, <laughs> but do you see, friends, how we can hide behind just kind of menial conversation and what the scriptures are calling us to is to be Godward in all of our lives. And and the church depends on men who have a spiritual seriousness about them. We are in a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And little trinket-like conversations between the people of God will not serve to produce more fear of God in us. And so I want to call on men to speak about the texts that we go through as a sun, on Sunday after Sunday, to encourage one another, to gather through the week, and to simply read the Bible to, to one another, to speak with your wife about how the Word of God that we work through on a Sunday has hit your heart, and to encourage your children to speak to one another, and to have this mindset on your heart to be an instrument of Worship, an instrument of holiness, an instrument of encouragement in the life of other brothers. And yes, talk about football and hunting and all these things. But let's let the primary orientation of our heart be thinking about encouraging one another to help one another follow Jesus. A a simple tip on how to do that is that even today, just speaking to a brother, a man speaking to a man in this congregation before you leave this building, just looking at a brother and saying, hey, brother, what's your biggest struggle? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? Just that question will lead the conversation to a direction that will help produce more earnestness and more seriousness and more fear of God in your life. Amen. Secondly, the fear of God trusts in God's justice and submits to his providence. The fear of the Lord trusts in God's justice and submits to his providence. One of the things going on in this text is that the people were basically saying God is not just. God's not just. He is not bringing earthly justice to these Persian captors. 
God seems to be asleep at the wheel. Does God even care about justice? And not only to the Persian captors, whose thumb we are under, but also, just we see this ungodliness in the midst of Israel. And so even there were some people maybe that had a kind of burden for holiness, but they saw sin abounding in the people of God, and it was producing in this, them a kind of frustration with God because they believed that God should bring his justice now all the time in completion. And it was causing them to doubt God's righteousness, and they were not able then to submit to his providence. They're complaining to God. What use is it to serve him? And maybe some of us feel that way. I, I think when we look at the world around us, it's just the wickedness, the sin that abounds. We, even, we just, see, just see aspects in our society where, 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 where people are victimized. And we wonder, where is, is God's justice in that? But when we understand the fear of the Lord, it lifts our eyes. It gives us an eternal perspective. I want you to become familiar with this psalm if you're not already. Psalm 73, which is a wonderful picture of an appreciation of God's justice and providence. Let me read Psalm 73. This is a beautiful psalm. For those of you that might struggle with whether or not God is just in all his ways, you need to, you need to camp in Psalm 73. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's already bringing up the problem of justice. Where's God is what he's saying. Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of, rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Verse 13 sounds exactly like the people in, in Malachi 3. This is vain. Verse 14, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verse 16, he turns, he transitions. But when I thought how to understand this, when I tried to piece it all together, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. When I went to God, I got perspective that lifted me above these 80 years, I think is what he's saying. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. See how his perspective has changed from the temporary to the eternal. Verse 25, some of the most beautiful words in the Old Testament. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I might tell, may tell of all your works. You see the perspective? And he's, he's, he, he lifts his eyes from the temporary to the eternal and ultimately to the judgment of God, which we'll get into next week. But his perspective changes. The fear of the Lord gives us an eternal perspective, and it causes us to submit to God's good providence and judgments for our lives. John Wesley, who along with his brother Charles was the founder of the American Methodist Church, said this, I don't agree with all that Wesley said and wrote, 
but I do appreciate many things that he said and listen to this quote that he's famous for, which I think is so encouraging and helpful. He said, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine. In other words, do with me what you will. Use my life for your glory because I know that eternity is most important. God will bring justice. I think a beautiful example of this just this past week, we, we laid to rest a charter member of Crosspoint, Stephen Hall. We mentioned last Sunday, and we prayed for him, a man who helped us start the church and has been a member since we began the church 14 and a half years ago. Stephen Hall passed away this past Saturday a week ago with, with, with stomach cancer, and uh, this past uh, Friday, we laid him to rest and had a graveside funeral. And I think Stephen was a beautiful living example of this fear of God that produced in him a trust in God's providence and justice. Stephen was 61 years old when he passed away this two Saturdays ago. And Stephen had a, a, what I would consider a challenging life. When he was in his mid-20s, he was living here in Columbus and was working a job and just a young man I think he was a believer at the time, but a young man who was just kind of working at, at, uh, at Blue Cross Blue Shield, had a good job, working his way up, and he was in a horrific accident where he was hit by a drunk driver. The doctors told his family that he wouldn't survive, and then after it seemed like he would survive, after a few days, the doctors told his family that he would be in a vegetated state, and eventually he pulled out of that. But after the accident, even though Stephen fully recovered physically, he was, he, he, he did, he was diminished in, in his capacities, quite diminished. He wasn't the same man that he was before mentally and just his ability to, to work. And that sent him into a few decades of a lot of difficulty, a lot of difficulty in work and just being a man. And then I remember when I was at another church where I met Stephen, Stephen had not been married, and he was in his late 40s, and he got married, and his marriage ended very, very quickly and very, very terribly, where the lady that he married didn't end up being the same person that she presented himself, herself to him, and she ended up, after just a few months, really just plunging him in, into almost financial ruin and then leaving him. And then Stephen struggled. And when Robert and I were visiting Stephen in the hospital a couple weeks ago, and he got his final diagnosis that they weren't going to be able to remove the tumor, and he was faced with the reality that his situation, his prognosis was terminal, and that there was no more medical hope, and that he would die soon. Through tears, he looked at Robert and I in his hospital bed, and he says, you know, I've had a good life. And to my shame, the first thought that passed through my mind was chastening. I remember thinking, Stephen, I know your life. I didn't say this out loud to him, but from my perspective, Stephen had a hard life, a challenging life. And yet Stephen's perspective was the opposite. I've had a good life. God is good to me. And Stephen was on the brink of eternity, and he had this fear of the Lord that produced in him a trust in God's disposition and providence towards him. That's a living example of a man who's walking in the fear of the Lord. Praise be to God for this dear life. Thirdly, the fear of the Lord spares us from wrath and unites us to Christ. It spares us from wrath and unites us to Christ. Look at verse 17. Listen to what God says about those who fear him. It says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my treasured possession. In that day, he's speaking to, I think, the end, the, the, the return of Christ. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Spare, spare them from what? 
ultimately sparing them from God's right justice that he will pour out on all the earth when he comes again. And we'll, we'll consider this more deeply next week. But we see that the fear of the Lord in these people, God promises that it will spare them from his wrath. And how does he do this? Well, we fast forward to the New Testament and we read accounts of how the gospel hits a person's life. A person, we are all dead in our sins. We're dead. We're following the course of the world. We're complaining against God. We have a man-centered perspective, as Ephesians 2 says this. We are are enemies of God, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. But God, who is rich in mercy, when he saves a person, he gives us a new heart. He regenerates us. He takes out our heart of stone. He gives us a heart of flesh. And with that heart of flesh comes the gift of faith and repentance, whereby a person then turns from trusting in themselves and puts their hope and faith in what God has done in his son Jesus to reconcile people to himself. And how does Jesus reconcile people to himself, to his father? By laying down his perfect life on the cross to bear God's wrath. That's what Romans is all about, that Jesus bears God's wrath. He extinguishes it. It's not that God's holiness is just all of a sudden kind of gone in the New Testament, but that Jesus bears, consumes, extinguishes, receives God's wrath for us, for those who will fear his name and turn from trusting in ourselves and put our hope in Jesus. For those that will repent, for those that will trust in Jesus, for those that will will flee to him, he spares them from wrath and he unites us to himself through faith. That's the heart of the whole Bible. And we see the gospel embedded in verse 17. They shall be mine. How does God make people him his? By taking their dead hearts out, giving them a new heart, causing them to trust in Jesus, and they trust in Jesus, and they fasten themselves to him through repentance and faith, and God spares them because all of his wrath that should have been theirs is poured out on his son. And Jesus, who is infinitely holy, not just man, but fully God, has enough holiness to atone for all the sin, to satisfy all the wrath of God. And he removes it. He drinks it dry. And he gives us his righteousness. So how can a a sinner, a complaining sinner, whose heart has been changed, who now fears the Lord, actually become his treasured possession? By the sovereign work of God and the gospel. He takes our heart out. He gives us a new one. He gives us faith and repentance whereby we behold Jesus and we become his. And this is what the fear of the Lord helps to produce in our life as we trust in Jesus. Listen to this text in 2 Corinthians about this this fruit of the fear of the Lord, which is godly repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I think verse 10 is a kind of picture of the two different types of people in Malachi 3. Some people were just, they were just in grief because they thought God was at fault. But then the people in verse 16 who feared the Lord, they were in grief because they realized they were in fault and God was holy and they weren't. And so it brought them to a place of repentance that Paul says in 2 Corinthians, leads to salvation without regret. Verse 11, for see what earnestness, this godly grief, this repentance, this this fear of the Lord, we might say, has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, there's our word, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. And that punishment isn't something that we receive, but it's, it's, it's in context, it's Paul's Paul's saying that now it's produced in you a desire to produce holiness in the church by taking a hard stand against sin in the church. So it brings us to repentance, and we see the difference between worldly sorrow and godly repentance. And the difference is, all the way back into Malachi 3, the fear of God. Frustration with God, lack of fear produces godly sorrow. True fear of God, biblical fear, produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Which leads us to the fourth and final thing that the fear of the Lord leads to. It leads to sanctification, to a sanctification and a right witness. 
God uses us. And this is, you see, it's, it gets us back to why God even saved us in the first place. Look at verse 18 of our text again. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. So God's doing all this. He's wanting to put it on display. You're, you're going to see it between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So, so this, this regeneration, this salvation, this, this, this new life, this heavenly perspective that the fear of the Lord works, it leads to something. It leads to God's original purpose for his people in Genesis 12. It leads to a display of the glory of God amongst the people of God to the salvation of the people of God. It leads to the witness of the gospel amongst the people. That's what, that's what the end is here in verse 18. This was God's purpose in saving Israel, and it's God's purpose in saving us. The fear of the Lord leads to, to circumspect holy living, which leads us to a, a right witness that God would use our lives to be a display. So I conclude with this, just a question. Christian, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? I, I want to say yes to all the things that we say about relationship. You know how sometimes we'll say, and I've said this too, so I'm not dogging you if you said this, but I just want us to, when we say things like this, we also know that those things are standing on the foundation of truths like this. We say things like, like God is about relationship, not religion, right? I, I, think, I think there's a lot of truth in that, as long as we understand that that relationship is infused and fueled and formed by a right, reverent fear of God. And my concern about my own soul and my concern about the people that I'm responsible for spiritually, you, is that we live in an age of liberty. We live in an age of, of just kind of God is there. We instinctively live in an age as American Westerners where God is there to serve us. And I think we are much more prone to the attitude of the people that complained against God rather than we are to have the disposition of the people that feared the Lord. Because we get stuff immediately. Now it's here. Change my circumstance. And it produces in us a kind of intolerance with anything that's difficult, which then there's, that's a short step interpreting it as God not being just. And uh, uh, what's going on here is not that God is there to serve us, to, to sort of free us, to, to save us so that we might live however we want, but to save us so that now our lives, the way we handle everything in our life, is meant to put on display the great salvation that he's given us by his grace so that he would use our lives to be a witness for his glory, which is actually the pathway to more joy. So how do, you, how do you handle this, Christian? How do you, I mean, just think about your life. How do you, I, I think there's just excesses of liberty. I mean, how do you handle this? Back to Romans 15, considering the weaker brother. I don't want to have to preach Romans 15 again, and you don't want me to have to preach it again. But Romans 15 and 14 calls us to a kind of circumspectness in our liberty. It calls us to consider others better than ourselves. How, I, I, how are we living? Does our life speak of the fear of the Lord? A right, reverential, worshipful joy? Or does our living miscommunicate the salvation of God and the holiness of God to an onlooking world? An unbeliever to you, dear one, we're going to get into this more thoroughly next week, but there is coming a day, there's coming a day when there will be no more opportunity to change your heart on this. And I say this to you not because I'm some fundamentalist wanting to beat you over the head with a Bible, but because I think I'm a friend that loves you. There's coming a day, chapter 4 is, is absolutely true, there's coming a day when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. They will be set ablaze. 
And there won't be anything left of your opportunity to repent and to fear God. There will be neither root nor branch. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for you to fear the Lord and to come near him and be his friend through Jesus Christ. Today is the day. Turn from your sin. Turn from your, your, your unbiblical, your, your, your human wisdom. Turn from your complaining against God. Maybe your life has been rough, but turn from all of that and see that God is good and offers you life if you will come, if you will fear him, if you will, if you will change your mind and let it produce in you a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Dear friend, dear friend I beg you to consider this. Yes, God wants a relationship with you, but he's the potter, you're the clay, and that relationship is on his terms through his son to make your life a picture of his glory, not your own. Let's pray. Lord, help us with these things. May we be a church that's full of people that rightly fear the Lord. May the way we speak be circumspect. May the things we post on Facebook, may we be aware of how it might affect the reputation of the gospel. May the way that we speak with those that we disagree with, even within the body of Christ, may it, may it, have the flavor and aroma of charitability and graciousness and gentleness. May the way that we think about eternity not produce in us a kind of arrogant pride as if we're on the ark and everybody else is getting swallowed up in the flood and it's, you know, something that we did to get on this boat. But may it produce in us humility and a fear and a worship. You are our praise, as Deuteronomy says. May it circumcise our hearts. Produce in us, make us more gracious, more slow to speak, more humble, more reverent. We have such a a self-absorbed notion of the freedom of the gospel. Lord, free us from those faulty notions that we've been more informed by culture than we have been by the Bible. Lord, free us, purge us, make us more like Jesus. Sanctify us, God. And let us not buy into the lie that the fear of the Lord will lead us into anything but joy. Because that's where it ends, joy, joy, ever-increasing joy. And for my friends in this room who, 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 who came in not seeing this, Lord, don't know you, Lord, God, help, give them a heart to see this. And that can only be done by you, by you producing in them the thing that you require of them, which is faith and repentance. And that can only come if you, in your sovereign grace, give them what you require of them, which is a new heart. So Lord, you're pleased to glorify yourself through the salvation of sinners. So I'm asking you, God, to do it right now. Please give people new hearts in this room who came in dead. Give them a new heart. Lord, please, please. And do it all for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.